Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. With me today is CEO and CIO, Chris Wallace. Welcome, Chris. It's good to be here, Dan. All right. Well, maybe it's good to be here. Uh, we <laughs> thought we were going to be off uh, for like a week or so um, as we recorded on Wednesday, and then just kind of a lot of action in the last you know last day and a half. So we had to hop back on for a second podcast this week. Um, so just to refresh our listeners, so on Wednesday, we posted a podcast that touched on the developing issues around unreal, unrealized losses in the banking system, um, how that was a potential trigger for issues in this cycle, uh, and then you know how that differed from the prior financial crisis. And then as time would have it, right, within 24 hours or so of, of releasing the episode, you know, we witnessed that very issue taking down the 16th largest bank in the United States. So, um, Chris, for the first question for you this morning, uh, is Silicon Valley Bank, is it unique that this keeps, that this issue is, uh, is going to be isolated to that Silicon Valley Bank? Yeah. So th- there are some unique characteristics to Silicon Valley Bank. Um, the first and foremost is who their customer base is and the nature of their deposits. And what I mean by that is they primarily serve um, a a corporate client that's involved in and around either venture capital activity and or the technology sector. And with that, unfortunately for them, the absolute eye of the bubble this time was venture capital and uh, early stage companies, as we would talk about them, you know, companies that generate losses. They had plenty of capital, and when they have that capital, when they go raise money, they have to deposit it somewhere. And Silicon Valley has been a a very uh, good bank for a number of years, and they understand how to serve this client base and do it well, but they were at the epicenter of the excess accumulation of capital, and they were at the epicenter of the bubble. Now, what that means is their deposits are flowing out because a lot of the companies aren't profitable and or the companies are using relationships with Silicon Valley to get loans instead of injecting additional equity into the businesses as valuations have fallen since the peak of what I would call early stage or venture or speculative investment back in the first quarter of 21. Um, now, so their their deposit base was declining and probably declining fairly quickly. And I, what we ended up witnessing was the the withdrawals or the demands for cash as those deposits came down and those customers' demand for cash just quite frankly exceeded the cash they had on hand. And so that leaves them with a couple of choices, which is, A, they can try to go out and borrow money, which clearly they've done with the Federal Home Loan Bank. They may have hit their limits there, but they can also sell securities. And there's kind of two buckets for securities. And with the other thing that's unique about Silicon Valley Bank is their, their assets weren't primarily loans to companies, unlike most banks where the bulk of their assets are going to be loans out to operating entities uh, with, a, with a smaller uh, asset base of securities, which are bonds that they invest in or other securities. It's, it's inverse. So for Silicon Valley, the bulk of their assets were securities and not loans necessarily in the traditional sense. And they're split into two buckets, held to maturity and then available for sale. And so what we witnessed was as Silicon Valley was running out of cash because deposits were falling faster than the interest and the income they were receiving on their 
on their portfolio, they were forced to do two things. One, they had to liquidate their entire available for sale portfolio. That then triggered the recognition of the losses, because keep in mind, they were probably invested at a time when interest rates were less than 2%. Interest rates today on the short end are 5%. Further out the curve, they're just below 4%. So those bonds had unrealized losses. They recognized those losses. That was a big hit to their capital base. That then forced them to raise additional capital. And so what they announced yesterday was, hey, we're going to make 20% less. And oh, by the way, um, we need to dilute shareholders and we had to, you know, liquidate our portfolio because our, our deposits are shrinking faster than we thought. Um, that then resulted in a lot of concern. So you can imagine over the next 24 hours, any, any corporate entity or individual that had deposits above the insurable threshold uh, started asking themselves, uh-oh, what do I need to do? And it created a bank run. Um, you know, that we're recording this at just before 9 a.m. Central Time. And, and my thought this morning was, look, you know, they need to raise capital. Can they raise capital? If they can, then this can be an isolated event. If not, this is going to be a failure. This bank won't make it through the weekend. Um, and that's going to have repercussions. So, yes, there's unique characteristics to this bank. All the banks are not in necessarily a, a position to this extreme, but they were dealing with similar issues. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't look like Silicon Valley Bank was able to execute their capital raise. Now they're looking for someone to buy them. Um, I, look, I, my guess is over the next 24 hours, they, they're going to have to come to some resolution, whether that involves the F, FDIC or other regulators getting involved, or other banks, or they're able to find capital from someone with a very, very large balance sheet who can take advantage of the situation to extract some economic rent, we'll see. But this is not an issue that's going to fester. It's going to wrap up very quickly. Um, so yeah, Silicon Valley has a unique characteristic, but all the banks, all the banks today are paying attention, and they're asking themselves, oh, do we need to raise interest rates faster so that we can stabilize our deposit base? And even the most well-capitalized bank is, is going to be conservative and ask themselves that. The risk committees are going to start asking themselves that. And the answer um, is going to be yes. So I think we're going to see deposit or, or, or uh, interest deposit betas increase um, and interest rates move up higher, which means additional pressure on bank earnings for 2023. Yeah, and I, I think that's a that's a good place to, you know, great background, trying to understand the implications, right? I think that would be really helpful for our listeners. So, you know, what would you say are the, you know, the broader implications to the financial system or, or even greater the economy? Yeah, so first, I think the biggest implication is this needs to be a wake-up call for investors to understand how this cycle is different than the GFC. Everybody is going back and saying, well, it's not going to be like the GFC, blah, blah, blah. And look, we've been able to raise rates and it hadn't had an impact. This is, this is different. The, the way this is going to play out, as we've talked about, is we've raised the cost of capital. We have losses and losses take time to be realized. 
just happens to be since Silicon Valley was at the epicenter of the bubble and their client base really started coming under pressure 12 and 18 months ago, they were earliest or one of the first elements to start recognizing these losses. But there's some $800 billion of losses, unrealized losses in the banking system. Uh, That doesn't include the losses that are in private credit. And private credit is where a lot of the excesses were this cycle. We haven't been through a cycle where it's where the bulk of the of the credit creation and the bulk of the risk is kind of outside of the banking system. So it's not going to be front and center in the same way. The Fed's not going to pay attention to it. The Fed's still caught up watching, you know, credit spreads because that was the issue the last cycle. That's not the issue this cycle. As we've talked about over and over, it's capital, it's asset values, it's insufficient levels of capital. So I think the, the, the first implication is we're going to see liquidity tighten up, right? Um, every, the, the banks and other lenders had already started tightening credit. And we've talked about this, and this is a great example of kind of the, the, the self-fulfilling elements or the negative feedback loop. We'll call it the negative reflexivity of unwinding a cycle, meaning we saw liquidity tighten up, we trigger losses, and now we're entering the credit loss portion of this. Silicon Valley experiences a loss and a failure. Their shareholder, equity shareholders get wiped out. Maybe some depositors lose some capital. That raises concerns, lowers risk appetite. So although loan officers and lenders were already tightening standards, they're gonna tighten them even more. And when they tighten them more, Liquidity availability, capital availability gets more expensive, less plentiful, and that then means, hey, there's somebody else out there. There's another entity that if if liquidity didn't tighten up, they were going to make it. Now they're not. So we're going to get another set of losses starting to show up because of that. Eventually, you cycle through these negative self-reinforcing elements and you reach a bottom or you get a policy solution. So again, we're in the discovery phase of these losses. There's other elements to this that are really important. Number one, the Fed's fighting inflation. That's what they tell us. It's important to understand that inflation is not created nor destroyed by lowering and raising interest rates. So the Fed has, I'd have to go back and really look at history, but I I can't think of a point in time where we have raised rates from a rate of change standpoint, maybe even from a nominal standpoint, this aggressively over such a short period of time. They're doing it in the name of tamping out inflation. The reality is it has nothing to do with stopping inflation. If they really want to stop inflation, they, they would need to have come out the first day, raised interest rates to, you know, 15%, and then all, all the liquidity would have just stayed within short, the short end of the curve, and we would have destroyed inflation. But what they've done isn't extreme enough to stop inflation. So inflation's going to play itself out regardless. What they did do was really damage asset values. And we we just finished discussing what those implications are. Now the Fed's in a really difficult position because their interest rate increases, while necessary, but not sufficient to stop inflation, they are sufficient 
to have burst the bubbles. And so now they're going to be on a timeline between how do I keep raising rates when it's been demonstrated that I am severely damaging the banking system and asset prices and uh, private sector net worth, which becomes a political issue. So they're going to have to really start dancing a fine line here, and we're going to start to see these issues as we've talked about. We've talked about we're probably going to see more gating. We're going to see other elements. And this will start to spill out into other asset classes. There's a lot of complacency in commercial real estate. That's going to start dissipating over the next three to six months. So this really does put the Fed in a very, very difficult position and they are not on autopilot, and they can no longer just kind of watch employment inflation and, and play the game they've been playing. There's another piece of this that's much longer term, and, and some people are going to think this is philosophical. This is just math. The reason why we watch Silicon Valley go down, the reason why we have inflation, and the reason why the Fed has had to step up and raise rates as much as they have is because the federal government and their deficits have gotten to be too large a percentage of the public sector. And because we're financing those deficits with monetization and because we shifted to policies that put spending directly into the private sector, we created inflation. Government spending increased 47% during the COVID pandemic. Uh, if you look at the Biden budget, and again, it's completely political. It's not going to get passed. Um, and that's true of either party. That's not a, a, a party statement or a partisan statement. It's just the nature of how the system works. The, the, the federal government would represent 27% of the economy. Uh, typically, it's around 18 to 20%. At 27%, because it grew so large with the incremental stimulus spending, it created the inflation. It actually created the environment that required much higher interest rates. And it has, in fact, now crowded out the private sector. It just took down the venture capital community. Some of that is, is necessary. There was a lot of excess there and poor allocation of capital. But it took out the bank. It took out Silicon Valley. It's now taking out and will continue to take out the uh, commercial real estate space as we, as we reprice that. The reason why I believe we're ultimately in a multi-year bear market and not just a valuation reset is the level of federal spending is unsustainable, meaning anywhere close to these rates, there's not a balance to where it can be funded with tax receipts. It's going to need to be monetized and it's going to create more inflation politicians at any level are loath to shrink their influence. They're there for power. The federal government is, is not willingly going to shrink its spending. Quite frankly, it doesn't have a lot of options to do it without creating a lot of damage, either into the healthcare system via cutting entitlement spendings and reimbursements or within the defense space. So the federal government's going to continue to crowd out. We're going to continue to have insufficient levels of capital and create losses, or the Fed's going to have to restart QE and accelerate inflation, in which case we'll finally reach a balance, meaning the federal government will continue to expand, but expand at a rate lower than inflation. The nominal level of the private sector will grow and will rebalance back to a lower percentage, or... Ultimately, the federal government can cut their spending, 
shrink back to a level that's sustainable, and then that will trigger a very significant contraction in the U.S. economy, right? So if you just let kind of go back and mean revert to where federal spending was um, uh, pre-COVID, which wasn't sustainable then, and get it to a sustainable level, it would not surprise me to see the U.S. economy contract initially by, you know, three to five percent, which is massive. Like, I can't overstate how large a contraction that is. And to trigger a recession of that level, um, you know, politically can't be done. So this tug of war is here. And the reason why Powell raising rates and sticking with it is so important is, you know, if you want to take a, a moral imperative that that he needs to do it to force the proper rebalancing with asset values and the poor allocation of capital by the private sector and the gross overspending and overpromising of our, our federal bureaucracy. And the only tool he has to create that balance is much higher rates. But that ultimately is what's at stake. And so that's a political calendar. That's a number of years um, there's a lot of unintended consequences under underway, but ultimately that is what's going to re- result in uh, stability or balance and kind of reset to kind of a broader, uh, uh, broader meaning global and across all industries bull market. And that's why we've been talking about, we talked about this on Monday, look, we're at a point where we're going to start to get binary outcomes. We're either going to accept much higher levels of inflation or deflation, and we're going to get nonlinear economic impacts and impacts to asset prices. So it's a lot, but I'll leave it there. uh, We'll leave it right there. All right, good. Um, Great recap. A lot of developing still. Um, A lot to watch, you know, the rest of the day on Friday and through the weekend. So um, we'll catch up here with you soon, and um, hopefully it's a little bit a little better news, a little more stable news at the very least. But uh, we'll, we'll keep watching the story and get back with everyone when we can. Sounds good, Dan. Thanks. The views, information, and or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Von Nelson and its employees. Von Nelson does not verify and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast, or any podcast in the series, does not constitute professional investment advice or services, and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast are the property of Von Nelson or used by Von Nelson with permission and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws. Securities discussed within this podcast may be held in the Von Nelson strategies.